Today's Gospel reading comes from the 8th chapter of Luke, verses 19 through 21. Hear the Word of God. And his mother and brothers came to him, and they were unable to get to him because of the crowd, and it was reported to him, Your mother and your brothers are standing outside, wishing to see you. But he answered and said to them, My mother and my brothers are these who hear the word of God and do it. Whether and how sinners respond to the gospel of God's reign over us, that's been the constant steady drumbeat of the Lord's teaching ever since the beginning of the 8th chapter of Luke. Whether and how we receive this glorious news is the main thing on his agenda. It's the central point he keeps driving home there at the Capernaum lakeside. In verse 8, for instance, he invites us, and the tense of the verb suggests he invites us repeatedly. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And then again in verse 18, he warns us, take care. How you listen. A little review of where we've been. Back when the chapter first opened, the Lord established his peripatetic or his traveling school for apostolic preachers to preach the gospel of God's kingdom all over Galilee and beyond. But kingdom preaching by itself doesn't do the job, does it? That's just the first half of the whole gospel transaction, the free offer of the gospel. So, by the parable of the soils, he then teaches the hearers of the gospel how we ought to hear, how we ought to receive it. And then the last time we were together, we noticed the finished product he's got in mind whenever the gospel's rightly preached and rightly heard. You see, we need to understand that what we're engaged in right this very moment, you and I, as important as it is, the preaching and the hearing of the Word of God, this isn't the end of the story. Just getting to church to hear a sermon isn't the goal. It's not an end in itself. What we're doing here is the appointed means to an end. The very humble means intended to produce something actually that's quite spectacular, even glorious. And if we don't attain that glorious end, if we don't finish the race together, both the speaker and the hearer, then all our running's been in vain. Together let's press on to the goal for which Christ first appointed preachers and appointed hearers. Because failing that, We're just wasting another hour of our lives sitting here if we're not wasting something infinitely more precious and more lasting than that. So let's strive to cast off every spiritual hindrance and the sin that so easily besets us because together we're moving toward something that's glorious, toward the objective. Jesus said, No one, after lighting a lamp, covers it over with a container or puts it under a bed. 
Preaching and hearing the gospel of God's kingdom is to the end that lives now lit by the gospel flame and fanned by the spirit, these lives in Christ might now shine as the light of the world. That's why we're here today. That's why we preach. That's why we listen. To shine more brightly for Christ and in Christ and because of Christ. It was a stark brilliance, you remember, the glory of Christ's personal holiness that made him stand out, even stand out as a target for others back in those days of his earthly ministry. He became a target. We beheld his glory, says the Apostle John, and they most certainly did. But beholding isn't always appreciating, is it? Any more than seeing is believing. Sometimes seeing isn't believing. We beheld his glory. But so too did the scribes and the Pharisees and everyone else who took a stand against him. They all beheld the glory of his words, the glory of his works. How could they not? They're undeniable. But some of those who witnessed it for themselves, who beheld his glory... Some of them said he had a demon. That's the false narrative the scribes were trying to circulate, that Jesus of Nazareth casts out demons by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. And this particular visit of Jesus' family as he preaches to the assembled crowds there on the shore at Capernaum Mark's gospel sets it against the backdrop of this despicable, false narrative being circulated about Jesus. So Mary and her other sons aren't just coming to see Jesus. They're coming to take him into custody. They're coming to bring him home, to get him out of the public eye just as quickly, just as completely as they can. And the family dynamics aren't hard to understand. First of all, there's his mother, Mary of Nazareth, probably Joseph's widow by now, and with Jesus, her firstborn, being at this point something over the age of 30, Mary would be a woman very close to 50, maybe a little past that, certainly past childbearing, past the prime of a woman's life, even past middle age as we think of those years today. In first century Galilee, Mary, at 50, was an aging carpenter's widow, living as quietly as she could in a small town that was famous for nothing except the fact that nothing good ever comes from there. So unless she has a very compelling reason, Mary's probably not going to leave her comfortable hearth and home there in Nazareth. And why would she? After all, there with her in Nazareth are her younger sons, James and Joseph and Simon and Judas, all young men by now in their teens and twenties, probably. All sons of Joseph, her late husband. She also has a couple of daughters, maybe more than a couple. It's a fine family she has. It's a biblical family. It's kosher. It's respectable. And then just a year or two ago, Jesus, the firstborn son and heir, 
Jesus left the nest to pursue his life's calling. But what a calling! To burst the iron shackles of rabbinical Judaism and lead God's people back into the green pastures of biblical truth the world's never seen or heard anything like the ministry of this man. The poor people heard him gladly, but not everyone heard him gladly, not those forging the shackles. They're coming along with a plan to shut him down if they can. A plan that includes public defamation as an evildoer in league with the devil, because then as now, what matters with far too many people isn't whether there's any evidence, isn't due process under law, isn't even the truth. Those things don't matter. What matters to them is the seriousness of the charge. Well, if you have an interest in maintaining the good name of your family, you're very apt to take whatever steps are necessary to protect it, aren't you? Even if it means some personal inconvenience, some potential embarrassment. So Mary bestirs herself from her home, her comfortable home, and with these big strapping carpenter sons of hers along to support the effort, she makes the trip across Galilee, down to Capernaum, their plan is to take Jesus out of the public eye and bring him home. Let him put his feet up and rest a bit. Once again, Mark's gospel fills us in on some of the details. Chapter 3, verse 21 of Mark. And when his own people heard, that is, heard of the crowds gathering round Jesus as he taught, when his own people heard, they went out to take custody of him. For they were saying, he has lost his senses. He's lost his senses. That's the rest of the story that Luke is telling, just as politely as he can, in verses 19 and 20. It's the reason Mary came to Capernaum, the reason she brought some of her other boys along with her, because at this point, not even his own flesh and blood believed in him. They just thought he was losing it. Well, as the Edelweiss of Alpine Europe, they say, blossoms from cracks in the rocks. And as our own Texas blue bonnets seem to thrive on hill country caliche, in a similar way, much of the loveliest biblical truth has sprung from the mouth of Jesus at his most difficult moments. It becomes for us honey from the rock, and that's what we have before us today. It's something over 20 miles from Nazareth down to Capernaum, and Mary and the boys arrive there late. For the press of the crowd, they can't get anywhere near Jesus as he teaches, so they send word in to him. They pass along a message, and the message eventually reaches someone sitting there in the front row. Someone sitting close enough that Jesus, even as he's preaching, can actually read in that man's eyes an expression that he's got something to say, maybe something urgent. So even while he's preaching the glorious kingdom of God, those wonderful words of life and light, 
Jesus pauses just long enough to hear whatever it is the man has to pass along. Maybe it's a testimony of God's grace and goodness. Maybe it's someone's urgent plea for the Savior's help. How's he going to know what this man's face is trying to tell him unless he stops preaching? So he pauses. He stops preaching. And he looks at the man with the urgent message. And he asks, at least with his eyes, if not with his words, What is it, my friend? What's on your mind? And it was reported to him, Your mother and your brothers are standing outside wishing to see you. For this, the blessing of preaching and hearing the word of God is interrupted. Interrupted mid-stride, mid-thought, maybe mid-sentence. A simple administrative announcement brings the main business of the sermon to a screeching, if momentary, halt. Your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to see you. Now the relationship that existed between Jesus and his mother makes for a fascinating Bible study, one I won't pursue here except to say first of all that Jesus honored his mother at all times. He honored her under every circumstance, some of which must have sorely tried the patience of both of them. And secondly, I should add that to the very day she saw her son crucified on Calvary, Mary never fully understood him. How could she? How could she? Certainly she treasured up the things she knew of him. She kept them in her heart. She certainly loved him. But from the beginning to the end of raising this boy, not a day passed in which Mary wasn't in way, way over her head. Young people, please take special note of what I'm about to tell you. You probably know what it is to be embarrassed by your parents on occasion. Embarrassed maybe in front of your friends. Embarrassed either for your parents' sake or for your own sake by whatever it is mom or dad unintentionally said or unintentionally did that put you in an awkward spot. Notice this. Keep it in mind. Jesus takes special care to say nothing that reflects discredit on his mother. Nothing. Three of the four gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, record this awkward public moment in the Lord's ministry, that moment his family interrupts his sermon to tell them they had finally arrived... Three evangelists take note of it, and not one of them so much as hints that he groaned, or that he rolled his eyes, or that he threw up his hands, or that he gave one of those looks. And you know the look I mean. There is not one indication of filial frustration or embarrassment on Jesus' part. Now, this is one of those many times in life when the situation hands him a lemon and he makes of it lemonade. He takes this 
awkward public situation and turns it to good advantage for everyone there. Verse 21. But he answered and said to them, My mother and my brothers are these who hear the word of God and do it. These people now gathered round him, many of them no doubt broken-hearted, grieving, distressed, worried, needy in every way imaginable. These people who came hoping to find their answers in the word of God are akin to Jesus in the points that matter most. They love him. They love him. He's not like any rabbi they've ever heard before. They simply love him. He's like them in so many ways. And of course he had to be. He came on our behalf as the man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, acquainted with our grief. And for every sad situation we have to deal with in this fallen world, he came with solid, vital answers. Biblical answers. That's why so many were there. That's why so many were pressing in on him. It's because he spoke to their present need. And he spoke to it with authority and with answers that genuinely, positively help when they're put into practice. Of course, he loves his mother. Of course, he honors her. Any deficit in that department disqualifies him from being anyone's savior because God simply doesn't accept a blemished lamb as a sacrifice. He'll never accept the death of one sinner for another. So the very first qualification of a savior is that from beginning to end, he keep God's law absolutely unbroken from the grand penetrating spirit of it all the way down to its last jot and tittle. He honors his mother by saying or doing nothing unkind to her. But here he shows us something vastly more amazing even than that. Now, family is important. Of course it is. But the reach of Christ's welcoming grace transcends matters of flesh and blood. He came indeed to be this virgin's son, the firstborn and heir of this particular family, with all the rights and privileges appertaining thereunto. But more to the point, when he came, he came as the promised seed of Abraham, in whom all the families of the earth are blessed. In hearing his word and doing it, you're blessed. In hearing and doing it, I'm blessed. When by the grace and power of his Holy Spirit we're enabled carefully to hear the word of God and put it into practice, Christ Jesus, who's now risen from the grave, who's ascended, who's reigning, he acknowledges us before the Father. He owns us. He owns you to be his kindred, his holy family. Within his obedient church appear the first glimmerings 
of a family likeness. Like the firstborn, his brothers and sisters, hear the word of God and do it. So then, my friends, you are no longer strangers and aliens. But in the words of Paul, you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. Thanks be to God. Amen.